Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And Lord, I pray that you will just bless us as we read your word today. Help give us clarity of thought and uh, impress it upon our heart. And just help me as I speak, God, that I may, um, yeah, that I might be faithful to what you are saying here. And um, may your Holy Spirit really meet with each one of us today. Father, convict us by your word and encourage us by your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Remember when you were a kid? Some of you have to remember a long time ago when you were a kid and you watched those Disney movies. And Disney was really good to you when you were a kid, right? Because you knew immediately when you started watching the movie uh, who the bad guy was and who the good guy was, right? I mean, like literally Scar, had, who had the scarred heart, literally had a scar on his face and the dark black mane. Right? Or uh, what's her name? Maleficent. She, she, you know, she's a dark purple. I mean, she just looked evil. And, and, and all the good people, they were, they were dashing and handsome and beautiful and flawless, right? And you watch those Disney cartoons and they, Disney was really good. You didn't have to, as a, as a little kid, you could realize here's the good people and here's the bad people. And don't you wish life were like that? Right? Like, don't you wish life was simple enough that we could just divide humanity into the good people and the bad people and everyone would kind of remain in their roles? So I knew that I could trust the good people and I knew not to trust the bad people and it was just easy that way. It was just simplified that way. And... And man, we're going to look at this chapter in Genesis chapter 20. And this is a chapter that is not very simple as far as the morality in this chapter and the picture that we get of the people, of their lives here. And it would be nice to think that Abraham always did good. And it would be nice to think if, you know, those pagans outside always did bad. And... That's not the world the Bible describes. I mean, another thing, if you're a Christian here, I bet you, like, wouldn't it be nice? I want to I see you guys, Christians. Wouldn't it be nice if when you came to Jesus and began following Him as your Lord and Savior, if your life as a Christian was always on the uphill? Like, wouldn't it be nice if you were always obedient? And wouldn't it be nice if you always did good? And wouldn't it be nice if you looked back over the journey of your life and you said, man, never stumbled, kept on growing, always was walking in the right direction. And wouldn't it be nice if we came to church and we all like looked at each other and were excited to see each other and we said, man, how have you walked forward in Christ this week? This week, and everybody always said, oh man, this week, 
I had some challenges, but I always, boom, met him. Always walking forward. Everything's good. Would not that be great if that were our lives as people of God? If that were, and, and there would be some people who, there may be some pastors and some preachers who will give you this picture that that is what life is like. I, that we just kind of paint that Disney picture for you. And, and I could get up here and I could rail at the pulpit and say, all you guys in here, you're Christians, right? So you're going to be the good people. And all the people that aren't at church on Sunday morning, those are the bad people. And it always just played out that way. Like, that would be pretty cool. But it would be kind of a lie. And uh, it's not the world the Bible describes. I mean, one of the things about the Scriptures is that it paints a real picture of real people living real lives. And it does not hide the ugliness. And that's one of the reasons why people believe the Scriptures to be true. I mean, Abraham and the people in the Scripture, they are, they are real people. If I'm writing my autobiography for everybody to see, I would like to cover over those parts of my life that I don't want you to know about. But we come to Scripture and we get chapters like chapter 20. And uh, it's rough. We live in a world of moral complexity, a world in which good people do bad things and bad people surprise us. A world in which people of faith are also people of deep failing and our progress toward maturity takes at times great detours. And all of that underscores the fact that in the Bible, as Jesus said, no, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. God is the only hero. Jesus is the only one who, who truly is good. He's the only one who does not fail. And, and listen, our pride, we don't like to hear this reminder. We don't like to hear the reminder, but the reality is that sin has affected and affects every part of our being. Sin affects every aspect of our human experience. And therefore, the simple, the simple thing like who's good, who's bad, who's what, what is right, what is wrong, gets mixed up in this moral complexity. You know, the Bible's written so that we grow up from those Disney fantasies of our childhood. Right? You can go to Disney and you can see good and evil played out right in front of you, and the Bible will paint this picture that should bring us to maturity because we begin to see ourselves for who we are and others for who they are and God for who he is. So Genesis chapter 20 is one of those reminders. If you already read, as we read this chapter, maybe you've already seen that. And so, just when we get to the Genesis chapter 20, if you have a copy of the scriptures, there, there's some in the pews in front of you. You can read along. I'll put some verses up here. But, but Genesis, at the beginning of Genesis chapter 20, Abraham leaves the place where he's been uh, near Hebron, a place called Mamre. And he leaves, and he leaves uh, into the direction of Egypt again. And we don't know why he leaves this time. Uh, some people think that maybe he actually thought his nephew Lot was destroyed in the destruction of the cities of the valley, and he's grieving and he just has to leave. He needs a change of scenery, change of pace. Um, some, I was reading about the geology of Sodom and Gomorrah, and some people think that um, 
actually the, the cataclysm of the damage that was done would have affected the air and the vegetation. And so he may have had to leave for the sake of his fields and his herds. We're not, we're not given an indication of why um, suddenly uh, Abraham packs up and journeys toward the territory of the Negev. But here's what happens in, in, these, in Abraham's life. Whenever he's in Canaan, he's generally doing spiritually well. And when he begins to wander, it's not just a physical wandering, it's a spiritual wandering. And that's what happens in this chapter as well. That's right. It's like every time he kind of leaves Canaan, the land God's promised him, he doesn't do well for himself. And it's no difference here. His proximity to Canaan seems to be tied to his spiritual vitality. And what we see here, we're going to look at two kind of pictures. We're going to look at Abraham and Abimelech. And Abraham is this man of faith. He is the man of faith, but here he falls into familiar failing. Right? He's this man of faith, but, but he doesn't come out well in this chapter. And then we're going to look at Abimelech. And Abimelech is this Canaanite king, right? These, these wicked people outside. And he's this Canaanite king, and he surprises us with his exemplary character. And so the good act badly, and the bad act godly, and it's all confusing, and we're going to try to figure out what we can make out of it. All right? So that's where we're going today. So let's look at Abraham, the man of faith. He falls into this familiar sin. And the most obvious thing that jumps out of the story is that Abraham's done this before. Right? He did this in chapter 12 when he was, there's a famine in Canaan and he went down to Egypt and he was scared because his wife was so beautiful at 60 years old that he tells everybody, she's my sister and she gets taken into Pharaoh's household. And, and maybe we could, in a sense, excuse that in Genesis chapter 12, Right? Because, or sorry, yeah, it's the end of Genesis chapter 12. And maybe we'd be able to like kind of excuse that for Abraham. Like it was only at the beginning of chapter 12 that God called to Abraham and said, leave your father's house and your kindred and, and go to the land. So, so he's only been walking with God for a short period of time. And this was like the first major crisis he experienced. So he's still thinking like a man of the world. He's not thinking like a follower of God maybe. So in Genesis chapter 12, maybe we'd be like, okay, Abraham, you know, we were a little bit hard on you, but we also, it was kind of understandable, right? You know, when you become a Christian, you don't begin to change immediately. Your thinking doesn't begin to change immediately. Your behavior doesn't begin to change immediately. And sometimes when you become a Christian, you know, you mess up a bit. And the church and your friends and people come alongside you and say, you know, all right, we're, we're going to straighten the past. We're going we're gonna to chart a different way. We're going we're gonna to teach you and, and let's, let's, let's start reading the scripture. And... But here, Abraham's been walking with God for 30 years. How many of you guys have been walking with God for 30 years? Not many of us. And he's been walking with God for 30 years. He's had visitations He's prophesied, the Lord has spoken to him, the Lord has reinstated his promises to him time and time again. And he goes and he does the same thing that he did 30 years ago. And you're like, Abraham, what are you doing? In this episode, you know, when I first started outlining this sermon series, I was reading through Genesis and and somehow I got it into my mind that this episode happens after Sarah gives birth. And so I was thinking, 
okay, well, that maybe, maybe it's still not excusable. But I thought, well, maybe that makes sense. Sarah gave him the boy child he was looking for, and now she's expendable. And I thought that's what he was thinking. No. This happens, like, within a month. It has to be very short time after God has literally appeared to Abraham and said, in a year, Sarah's going to have a baby, the promised baby, in one year. And Abraham's like, first place he sees, here, take my wife. It's like, Abraham, come on, man. I, I, I don't get it. You would think with that promise, Abraham would be more diligent to protect his wife, which leads me to believe in this chapter, and we're going to see some things. I, I think, so we called this sermon series from the beginning, The Faith and Failings of Our Fathers. I think this is Abraham's lowest point. I think it's Abraham's lowest point. And we've seen some low points. I think this is it. I'll show you why. So anyway, Abraham's wife is taken by this man, Abimelech, the king of Gerar. And God appears to Abimelech and tells him, you're a dead man because you've taken another man's wife as your own. And Abraham, or Abimelech then, this king, goes and confronts Abraham, right? He says to him, Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? Right? That's kind of what we're asking. What have you done? Why... How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done things to me that ought not to have been done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, again, what did you see that you did this thing? Have you, as a Christian now, I'm talking to Christians, have you ever been called out by someone who does not share your faith? Have you ever had a friend say, hey, I thought you were a Christian. Why did you do that? Hey, I um, I thought you Christians were supposed to not lie. What did you do last night? Why did you tell me that? Right? Hey, uh, that wasn't acting very godly. Right? The pain and the shame you feel, right? Like, sometimes those rebukes are actually much healthier for us than even our Christian friends going, hey man, I think you've got to change your ways a little bit, or... You know, our Christian friends are sometimes too gentle with us. When, when, we, when we mess up in front of unbelievers and they're like, yo, man, I thought you were a follower of Christ. We're like, ooh. Right? I, I've had that happen to me by my parents. I, you know what hurts when you have that happen to you by your kids? Right? You call yourself a Christian? And the shame in being called out does not compare with how shameful... So when you're called out... So like David did some crazy sins, right? David, the King David in the Bible, did some crazy stuff. And when the prophet Nathan came to him and says, you are the man, David like fell on his face in front of him, right? Like just, just yeah, I've sinned against God. Please spare me. There's a way to respond when people call you out. Abraham does not follow that way, okay? So Abraham said, this is Abraham's response when he's called out. He says, I did it because I thought, there's no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. She became my wife. <laughs> what happened? She, 
just became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place which we come. Save me, he's my brother. So Abraham, this is how Abraham's responding to someone calling him out and saying, like, you did what ought to be done. Uh, first, he just gives a rationale, right? He rationalized it. I was acting out of fear. And he, and he says, he actually says to this guy who's calling him out, look, the reason why I did it is because you guys are all godless people who have no fear of God. What a self-righteous way to respond to an accusation. Right? This guy has, Abimelech, as we're going to see, he was visited by God and he said, you caused great sin and did what not should be done. And Abraham goes, well, the reason I did it is because you're so wicked. The reason I did it is because I was scared because there's no fear of God here. He justifies his sin. He makes excuses for his sin. Well, she's my sister. I, was, I wasn't really lying. I just was not presenting the truth to you in a way that corresponded with the reality that I wanted you to hear. So he makes excuses. And he, and he doubles down. You guys, so, so the reason I'm saying all these is because you guys and I, we know all these strategies, right? We know every single one of these strategies. Justify myself, make excuses, double down. So he doubles down and he goes, look, when I set out many years ago, I told my wife, every time we come to a city, just tell people you're my sister. Which either is a lie because we've only been told this has happened one other time, and he's moved around quite a bit. So either it's a lie here, or Abram has habitually been lying all along. Like, neither is good. Okay? So, so he doubles down. I mean, imagine if your mom came to you and, and said, hey, I caught you in a lie, and you were like, but mom, I always lie to you like that. <laughs> it's not going to work. So he doubles down. And then verse 13. Verse 13 here. I think I have it. No. Oh, there. I don't know what's going on there. Oh, I know. There we go. Verse 13 contains the most chilling part of Abraham's spiritual state at this time. Okay, he actually does two things here that are just chilling for, for him as this follower of God, this man of faith. Uh, Abram denies God in verse 13. And you can't really see it in the English, but it is as clear of his day in the original Hebrew. So the way you say God in Hebrew is Elohim. It's a plural noun, but we don't serve many, many gods. We serve a singular, we serve one God. That's the, the Jewish creed. We serve one God. There is no God. There's one God, right? Jehovah. But, but the name Elohim is a plural noun, but it always in Scripture takes a singular verb suggesting that this plural God is in fact one. We as Christians understand the, the Trinity, that God is the Father, Son, Spirit. He is the Godhead. He is one God three divine persons. We understand that as Christians. But and every time in the Old Testament when Elohim is used, it takes a singular verb, the, the, the plural majestic singular God. Every time in the Old Testament except for here. 
Every time in the Old Testament, speaking of our Lord, except for here, it's that singular plurality. Here, Abraham uses a plural verb. It's the only time in the Old Testament where it's ascribed to our God with a plural verb. And so what your English translation just said, when God God caused me to wander, what Abraham says is, when the gods caused me to wander, to wander. If you understand the significance of that in the Old Testament, you understand Abraham's actually denying God. Seriously. And then the word that Abraham uses, so he denies God, and then he denies, in a sense, God's call on his life, because the word he uses, usually when, it, when we're referring back to Abraham being called out of his country, it said, when the Lord called Abraham out of Ur. Almost every other time, that's what's used. When the Lord called Abraham, meaning he called Abraham with a purpose. When he called Abraham, he said, I call you, I'm going to make you, your name great, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you this land that I'm going to show you. Abraham was called with a purpose. And look what Abraham says here, when the gods caused me to wander, and the word in the Hebrew expresses a purposelessness in the wandering, an aimlessness. And so Abram, this is why I say in this chapter, Abram, I believe, is at his lowest point. And to be honest, I don't know how he got to this point, and anything I would say would be speculation. But he is in a low point. When he goes back, and he just, so when he goes to Jerusalem, He goes back, and even though he's been walking with God for 30 years, he goes back to the same pattern of life, the same thought process, the same fear that he was back when he was all the way back there in Ur, or at least all the way back there in Egypt. And man, is that a complex picture of spirituality. Is that a complex and chilling picture of the life of faith? That things can happen to us where we go back to that same mindset, we go back to that same behavior that characterized us before we were Christian, characterized us when we were a young Christian. And to be honest, I honestly hardly know what to do with this in my own life, and I hardly know how to preach it. Because I want to encourage you guys to say, keep on walking. He who endures to the end will be saved. Keep pursuing righteousness. Keep Keep saturating yourself in the Word and in the Holy Spirit. And I don't know how we can get to that point where we go back to the place that we were 30 years ago. And this is why when I pray for my friends and when I pray for you and when you pray for each other, don't just pray for your friend or your spouse or your kids or your neighbor. Don't just pray, Lord, fill them with your Spirit and give them zeal for you now Pray for your friends over decades. Say, Lord, I pray for my friend that he will be faithful to you in the years and in the decades to come. Lord, I pray for my friend that she will be walking with you, that I never want to see any of you shipwreck your faith. And you pray for each other in that way. And like I said, I could speculate as to how Abraham got to this point, but I have honestly no idea, and the text doesn't tell us. And the reason why there's a bit of hope here is the reason why I called this whole series 
patriarchs, the faith and failings of our fathers, is that these guys do, for the most part, endure to the end. For the most part, God redeems them. God changes their story, and God, God keeps on moving them forward. And God uses even these, I don't, these they're more than detours. I, I don't know what they're called. God even uses them to bring about his purposes. And, and, and I want to encourage you, if you're here, to go back and listen to last week's method, message about getting out of the valley of sin, right? Because these chapters are connected to one another. So go back. If you're there, if you're there, I mean, I wish I could tell you this story that Lot got out of the valley and followed Abraham and they had a joyous reunion. But for some reason, Moses, the author of Scripture, follows up the chapter on Sodom and Gomorrah with Abraham going into a deep, dark place. And I don't get it. And then let's look at Abimelech. Abimelech, the Canaanite king, displays this unexpected character, this integrity, that you're like, where did that come from? Remember Abraham's words where I was scared because there's no fear of God in that place? Like Abraham had just seen the wicked cities of the valley swept away by God's judgment. And remember, like put ourselves into the mindset not only in the story, we just saw all these wicked cities of the valley be swept away because there was no fear of God. But remember, Moses is writing to Israelites who are both fleeing godless Egypt and on their way to Canaan, where they, they already know that they're going to be displacing the Canaanite countries as an act of judgment as well. And so their mindset, the Israelite mindset, and sometimes that mindset that can creep into the church is just to be like, forget everybody out there. They're all just a bunch of sinners. And into that mindset, God gives this story where, surprisingly, Abimelech is like the man of the most integrity in the story. And, and a man of such integrity that he puts Abraham to shame. And so when God comes to Abraham in a dream by night and says to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman you've taken. She's a man's wife. Moses jumps in in verse 4, and he tells us Abimelech didn't touch her. He took her as a wife, but he didn't touch her. That'll be explained a little bit later. But, he, but Abimelech then says, God, in this dream, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister, and she herself, he's my brother? In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I've done this. And so we are supposed to call back, we are supposed to think about just two chapters before when Abraham said, Lord, will you sweep away the righteous for the wicked? And, and Abraham's interceding for the people, the righteous people in the valleys of the plain. We're supposed to remember what just happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And here you have Abimelech now doing the same sort of intercession saying, God, would you sweep away the righteous? I didn't know about this. They told me they were brother and sister. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hand, I've, I've done this. And it's not that Abimelech is morally perfect. It's that he has not knowingly, in this instance, committed that sin. And Moses is clear, like I said, that Abimelech didn't touch Sarah. He took her into the house, but he didn't, uh, he didn't uh, consummate the marriage. 
And the Lord confirms in verse 6. God says to him, yes, I know. God actually affirms Abimelech in this. He says, yes, I know. You have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. And we don't know exactly what kept Abimelech from touching Sarah, from consummating the marriage. It seems that maybe there was some sort of sickness from later in the, in the chapter, we'll look at it. Maybe there's some sort of sickness that had overtaken the women of Abimelech's household. Uh, it says they couldn't bear children, but maybe the sickness was the sort that prohibited sexual relations. In any case, God warns Abimelech he has to return Sarah to Abraham or it will result in the death of Abimelech and those in his household. So God's telling him at this point, ignorance is no longer an excuse to continue in sin once it's been brought to light. And so in complete contrast, in complete contrast to Abraham's expectation that there's no fear of God in this place, look at how Abimelech and his household respond to God's revelation in this dream. It says, so Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. At the end of the episode, Abimelech demonstrates his character once more. The end of this episode, after he confronts Abraham, it says, then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell wherever it pleases you. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. This is just another picture of Abimelech's integrity in this situation. He, he gives to Abraham an extraordinary amount of money, gifts, and even his choice of land to which to dwell, all to vindicate Sarah and to make restitution for having even accidentally and unknowingly taking her into his home. He's extraordinarily gracious to Abraham and Sarah. He only allows himself one little dig. I gave the money to your brother. Not your husband. Your brother. And, and can you blame him for that? I don't know. So that's the picture we have in this chapter of Abraham, the man of God, and of Abimelech, the Canaanite king. And man, is this not a Disney cartoon? Right? If it were, I don't know what kind of cartoon this is. But so this chapter causes us to wrestle with some realities of God working among mankind. We see in Abraham how pervasive sin is in us who walk by faith. And Abimelech the Canaanite king surprises us with his character and integrity. So what, what is the point of this chapter? I'm going to bring out six things of this chapter that, that maybe we should reflect on. The first is this. God's law applies to everyone equally, believers and unbelievers alike. One of the first things we get from this chapter is we see that God is actually going to hold this uh, Canaanite king accountable uh, for his actions. It, it is not when God gives the law that he only gives the law to Israel. God is the creator of heaven and earth and of all of, it, of, of their inhabitants. So that there is a moral law that is within us on account of this God who has created all of us that God holds every single individual accountable for. 
Murder is murder no matter where you are on earth or no matter what, how your culture has trained you to define it. Adultery is adultery no matter where you are on earth or how your culture has trained you to, defy, to define it. Okay, because these things are part of God's just and moral character, and God has created all humanity in his image to be under his rule, and whether or not he has given specific moral guidance through his law or not, he holds all nations and all people accountable to his moral character. So your, your friend who says, I don't need the Bible to tell me don't murder, in a sense is actually speaking right. Because even if that friend of yours does not believe in God, God will still hold him accountable to his moral law, even if that person rejects God's revelation in the scripture. And so there's a moral law in all of us, because we all are created in God's image. Whether you believe in God or not, murder is still sin, adultery is still adultery, theft is still theft, lying is still lying, and we will be held accountable. And second, there is a light of conscience in all people. So not only does God give and hold all men accountable to his rules, he also, by his grace, puts within each of us an ability to know and to affirm what is right and to provoke our moral reasoning so that your friend who's not a Christian still has within them a sense that there is right and wrong, though they may not carry that out. Neither do we. But we have put place within us a conscience that nags and provokes and points us out and sometimes crushes out. And, and what we do as human beings is we try to deaden our con con conscience and sear our conscience and ignore our conscience. But listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 2.14. Oh, sorry, I didn't put it up here. Romans 2, verse 14 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men and by Christ Jesus. Thank the Lord that he has put within us a conscience, though we do our best to ignore and sear it. Third, what God reveals in this passage is, is really one of the most interesting passages in Scripture that speaks to this, is that God restrains sin that mankind may not carry out all of the wickedness of our hearts. Right? God actually says in, in verse 6, it, one of the most revealing parts of this passage, the Lord says, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, Abimelech was completely unaware of that. Right? Abimelech was completely unaware of this God 
who created him in his image to be a moral agent before him. He was completely unaware that God had gifted him with a conscience that provoked him toward God's law, but then he was completely unaware that God actually worked to keep Abimelech from sinning against Sarah. And God said, I restrained you from sinning against her. It, it's, it's, this is this idea of this work of grace that restrains us in the world that we, we do not act out all of the wicked desires of our hearts. So, so let's get a little theological for a moment. Sorry here. But, but we speak of this idea of total depravity. Theologians make a, make a distinction between total depravity and absolute depravity. And what total depravity is, it means that every aspect, every part of our being and every part of our human experience is touched by and tainted by sin. So that we are unable to do right in a sense that will, that will earn a proper standing before God. We cannot. We are, we are unable to please God in what we do and in, in doing so redeem ourselves in, 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 we're unable to save ourselves in that way. So, so, so all of us need a Savior. All of us, every aspect of our human experience, mind, body, soul, friendships, institutions, structures, every, everything in our human experience is touched by and tainted by sin. But that does not mean that we act on our sin to the fullest and to the uttermost at all times. What, what, what the Bible teach, is, is teaching here even is that God actually will restrain us from acting out and being utterly depraved. And so as part of God's grace, we do not experience all of that total depravity. As an act of God's grace, he restrains us either through conscience within or by some sort of factor outside of us like he did with Abimelech, he restrains us from being as utterly depraved as we might be. And so all of this put together leads us to this very difficult truth to preach in a church. Because of every human being created in God's image being held accountable to his character because of that light of conscience that God has placed within each one of us, because of God's restraint of human sin, there now will be times that the integrity of unbelievers will at times put the integrity of believers to shame. This is a hard truth. This is a really important truth to understand. Because here's what happens sometimes, and I've heard some of the youth ask these questions, and so I want to address some of the questions the youth have had. You've said, well, my friends at school who are not Christians, they're not bad people, right? They, they're, sometimes they're, they work with greater integrity, greater character than some of the Christians that I see, right? You know that. You've, you've got coworkers at your workplace that they're really great people. They just need Jesus, and, and you know when you come to church, that guy, he's a Christian, he's a jerk. And so it's really important to understand and have this theological framework in which we understand that, number one, 
and, and this gets us to the, to the this last part I'm going to put on this, that, that the Bible, when the Bible speaks of good people and bad people, this is what we mean. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. None of us stand before a holy God because of sin. None of us stand before a holy God and can claim in and of ourselves that we get that label, good person. We don't get that label. We all have turned away to our own sins. We have all rejected and rebelled against a holy God. We've all broken his commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors ourselves. All of us have failed. All of us have failed. Every single one of us. We do not look and judge people on a curve. We do not judge people and hold them to our own relative morality. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God has put a conscience in some of us, in all of us, and God has restrained some of us from sin in that state of falling short of the glory of our God. Some of us are better people than others if we're judging them through human eyes and experience. Some people are people of greater integrity or lesser integrity. It does not matter because the message of the scripture is we all have sinned and we all need a savior. And that is why when you go to your high school or when you go to your workplace, you will see people who deny Christ but are people of integrity. It should not surprise you. And it does not surprise us in Genesis chapter 20 when we go to Abraham. What are you doing, Abraham? Why are you acting as you did 30 years ago when you were a new follower of God? And it does not surprise us when we say, Wow, Abimelech, you're, you're acting rightly in this situation. It does not surprise us because we do not use the world's definitions and terms when we think of the goodness and badness of human beings. We all have sinned and we all have fallen short of the glory of God. And the fact that some people, I don't know, God restrains their sin or they listen to their conscience enough that they're people of character and integrity. We should rejoice in the common grace that there are good people, but they're not good before a holy God. And neither are we. And the chapter finishes with this weird thing that only an act of God's particular grace can save. There's one other thing in this passage that gives us a little bit of like, what? I don't get it, possibly. And it's this. If we just had Genesis 20, if we we're just reading this chapter alone, we might find it really strange that God says, excuse me, a couple times through the chapter, that Abraham has got to pray for Abimelech. If you're just reading Genesis 20, Abraham's the jerk and Abimelech's the good guy, right? Like, if we're just reading there, and you're like, why is Abraham the prophet who's got to pray for Abimelech? I, I don't get it. But that's why it's so important that we set this into the storyline of Scripture. Right? God tells Abimelech in the dream that Abraham is indeed a prophet. It's the first time the word's used in the Scripture, even though we've seen Abraham acting in prophetic ways before. But Abraham is definitely, in this chapter, not living up to any sort of standard you'd expect from a man of God. Yet God tells Abimelech that Abraham must pray for him, and then he does, and then the women in Abimelech's household are, are healed. So how, what do we do with this? Well, Abimelech must pray for, Ab or, sorry, Abraham must pray for Abimelech 
Because, as we have seen in the storyline of the scripture, it's not about these individual patriarchs, these men, Abraham, Isaac. It's about the story that God's unfolding in which God is choosing people through whom to give the promise that will lead to his Savior, Deliverer, Messiah, Jesus. Right? Abraham is the one chosen. Before Abraham was a man of faith or failure, Abraham was chosen to be the one through whom God would bless the nations. That in you, all nations of the earth would be blessed. It had nothing to do with Abraham's goodness. God, God literally chose him out of the nations of the earth, not because of anything in Abraham, but because of God's particular grace in driving humanity toward his Savior. And so this is really important because at the end of this chapter, we get into the next chapter. The first thing that happens is Abraham finally receives the promised child next week. And that's the whole point is that God is actually using Abraham and he uses Isaac and he uses Jacob to drive us, to drive humanity to Jesus, to God's specific and particular grace in providing a Savior. And so that is why Abraham's not asked to pray for Abimelech because Abraham's a great guy or because of his own righteousness or because of his morality, but because God has chosen Abraham. Through, that through Abraham, the nations of the earth would be, bla- would be blessed and that through his wife Sarah will come the child and the line of, of descendants that will bring about salvation of all who call out to the Savior. I, I, I wish, you know, I, I don't actually know how to, complete, to finish this message, to, to be honest with you. I, I don't. I, what I do see is this. There is no one good in Scripture but the Lord. And, and I see even through a chapter like this, in, its, in all of its moral complexity, God's purposes here are never abated. Remember when we started out this sermon series, I gave you an illustration that one of the reformers liked to use where he said, uh, God is able to draw straight lines through crooked sticks. And in Genesis chapter 20, the lowest point of Abraham's faith, I don't, I don't know where you get more of a crooked stick than that. But what I do know is that it's part of God, this, this plan of God to bring about the redemption of all who will call on the name of Jesus, Abraham's son. And so if you're here today, I, I just want to encourage you. If you, if, you're, if you are a person like Abraham who's been walking with Jesus and you're finding yourself in the same patterns and the same sins that you were decades ago, you know, I would pray for your encouragement that he who endures to the end will be saved. Come on out of that valley. Look to your Savior. If you need help, come and pray with us, you know, like let's 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 help each other to encourage each other to get out of there. If you're here today and you're like Abimelech and you might think, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'll tell you, according to the world standards, you might be, and that's awesome. I'm praise God for that. But I'll tell you, none of our goodness is enough to attain God's glory. And I pray that you might praise God for how he has restrained sin in your life. Praise God for that. 
but I pray that you would come and see that you as well need a savior. See, that was the biggest difference for me when I became a Christian. I thought I was a good kid. I was a good kid. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't hook up with girls. I pleased my parents. I was a good student. I was the good kid. And when I heard the gospel and it said, no, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, number one, I realized, yes, I did fall short of the glory, but I still thought I'm a good person. What I did not know and what I came to realize is that I needed a Savior. And that is what I would leave you with this week. You need a Savior. You don't just need someone to come and, and kind of make you a little better. That's not how this works. You need a Savior, and God has provided one in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we, we, we this is a hard passage, it's a hard chapter, Lord. I thank you, God. I, I pray that you call us out of our, 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 you know, our moral simplicity that just wants to put people in boxes, and I pray that you transform our thinking by the gospel. Lord, we all are in desperate need of you. God, you are the only one who is good and the son in whom you've sent. And Lord, I pray, God, that, uh, that, that we're not surprised, that we're not surprised when we see people who've been walking with Jesus mess up because it happens. And I pray that we're not surprised when we see people outside the church explain acts of character and integrity. That, that we praise you, God, because you are the good one who, who has revealed uh, your way.